At various times this evening, we're going to read a lot of Bible together. So a little bit later, be ready for some different passages. But for now, turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 6. In Nehemiah 6, I'd like to address one of the great spiritual battles that we fight as Christians, and that is really a struggle that very much defines the strength of our faith, and that is the battle against fear. Fear is a very real part of our lives, and I I think the list of causes of fear is, is endless, and we could make that list simply by interviewing one another, because we all have them. Fear of pain, fear of disappointment, fear of want and need, fear of financial troubles, fear of relationship agony, fear of physical suffering, fear of shame, fear of humiliation. Fear can become idolatrous and it can be a symbol of lack of faith and it can be a symptom of not abiding in the Word of God, of not growing in your trust in the Lord, or, or worse, of believing that you will only be happy when your situation gets better, when situations go your way. And in fact, in kind of looking at our own hearts, identifying in your own heart the root of habitual sins may involve identifying the root fear. What is it you're afraid of? That which you're truly fearing. And if you face that fear with truth and humility, what you may find is that fear is now replaced by courage and obedience. Fear is intertwined with, it's interrelated with the invisible spiritual battle which rages all around us. The evil one would have us to live in fear. The evil one would have us to shiver and shake in in the face of any and all spiritual oppression. And the fight against fear then is very much one in the spiritual realm of the heart. It's one internally. And it's one by relying on the resources of heaven. Tonight we come to a pivotal and a climactic point in all of Ezra and Nehemiah. It is very much a, a high point. The descendants of the exiles who have returned from Babylon and Persian captivity, they're now under the leadership of Nehemiah and They're on the verge of completing the task for their generation, and that is the completion of the wall of Jerusalem to render the city once more safe, render the city of Jerusalem once more in the hands of God's people. Now, last time we dealt with, uh, in chapter 5, the financial crisis among the Jews, the disunity among them. That's been resolved, and now attention goes back to the building of the wall, and we reach a, a high point. And the theme of this chapter Chapter 6 is the battle against fear because that's the very tool that the enemies of God's people are going to use in a last-ditch effort to to thwart the rebuilding of the wall to stop this project. Let me just show you that this is the theme of the chapter. Look with me at chapter 6, verse 9. Verse 9, for all of them were trying to frighten us. Look at verse 13. He was hired for this reason that I might become afraid. Look at verse 19, the end of the verse, the very last sentence of the chapter. Then Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid, frightened, afraid, afraid. These are all different versions of the same Hebrew word. So what do you do about fear, about that which frightens you? This is just a little side note. I didn't plan this, but it's amusing to me that this message falls on the day before Halloween, which is a day devoted to celebrating fear and celebrating terror. It's playing with that which is evil is something meant to be fun, being amused at the concept of death. So I love that this is falling on this particular day. Our series in Ezra and Nehemiah has focused on the great faithfulness of God to his people. In every message, we've highlighted one area of faithfulness tonight. I'd like to highlight the fact that God gives strength against fear. He gives strength against fear, and I'd like to give you three strategic weapons against fear. Straight out of our text here. The first strategic weapon against fear is prayer for now. Prayer for now. Prayer for this moment. Prayer in the, in the midst of the pain. And we'll just walk through the text a verse at a time here or so. Chapter 6, verse 1. Now it happened when it was heard by Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall and that no breach remained in it. Although at that time I had not made the doors to stand in the gates. We're in mid-sentence. I'm going to stop there for now. 
You recall that Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, these are leaders of respective peoples around Judah and Jerusalem. They've been a thorn in Nehemiah's side all during the past five months or so since Nehemiah first got permission from the permission from the Persian king to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. And what you notice here is that the wall is completed, but the gates are not. The gates haven't been set. The gateways are open. What does this mean? It means that the time is very short for those who hate the Jews to make their move. They must make their move now if they're going to stop this. They wanted to stop the shoring up of God's intended holy city. And so what we see in chapter 6 are two desperate attempts to stop the wall rebuilding. We're going to see these horrible, horrible people attacking God's program. And like most attacks on God's program, the attack is made toward the leader. Chapter 6 records the final kind of nerve-shattering days of rebuilding the wall. It's very tense. The writer makes a chilling statement in verse 1. It was heard by Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, and Arab, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall. Why is that a chilling statement? Because we get a little hint that not all the enemies are outside the wall. Some of the enemies are inside the wall. This is an issue which no wall can fix. We're going to see this is a spiritual issue, but the text will make that clearer as we go. We continue on that no breach remained in it, although at that time I had not made the doors to stand in the gates. Verse 2, that Sanballat and Geshem, this is at that time, sent a message to me saying, Come, let us meet together at Kepharim in the plain of Ono. But they were planning to do me harm. These leaders wanted to meet with Nehemiah. And they offered to go to the tiny village of Kepharim outside the larger town of Ona, northwest of Jerusalem. And why would they go there? Well, the idea would be that it's a, a neutral location. Probably the bigger idea is that it's a, a secluded spot and they could do anything they want without witnesses. They didn't give a reason, but they just said they wanted to meet. But Nehemiah is wise to their plan, but they were planning to do me harm. Now, some have said, well, Nehemiah was just paranoid. But the fact is, the word for harm here can mean anything from harming somebody's reputation all the way to cold-blooded murder. And so he knows whatever's going to happen, this probably can't be a good thing. And by some means we don't know, he found out they were planning, they were plotting against him. And this is a good little lesson here. When verifiably wicked men suddenly act nice, this is always suspicious. When they say we're on the church's side, no, they're not. You, you don't ever take that at, at face value. When the spiritual enemies of God suddenly seem to be helpful and supportive of the people of God, that should always be regarded with suspicion and distrust. So Nehemiah tried to deflect and avoid this without provoking them. And he does so quite brilliantly. In verse 3, so I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? This is a very witty and a shrewd response. He kind of puts them off. He's more focused on completing the work. He refuses to get sidetracked by this potential battle, which that in and of itself, by the way, is a great lesson that in a spiritual battle, you don't get sidetracked. You, you know what your goal is. You know what your objective is. And other things that try to sidetrack you, you just know that's a sidetrack. That's a sidetrack. That's a distraction. But these guys are persistent. Verse 4, And they sent messages to me four times in this manner. And I responded to them in the same manner. There are times when a spiritual battle may be fought simply by refusing to engage in it, and that is appropriate. But in this case, now the enemies of God's people show their true wicked colors once he refuses to go along with this seemingly innocent proposition. Verse 5, they show their true colors. Then Sanballat sent his young man to me in the same manner a fifth time with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, It is heard among the nations, and Gashmu says that you and the Jews are planning to rebel. Therefore you are rebuilding the wall. And you are to be their king, according to these words. You have also set up prophets to call out in Jerusalem concerning you. A king is in Judah. So now it will be heard by the king according to these words. So now come, let us take counsel together. Okay, they've shown their hand. This is what they're really saying. 
Now, generally, a letter is sealed. It has a wax seal on it. Did you notice it says came with an open letter in his hand? What does that mean? It means that this messenger from these men, from Sam Ballot in particular, this messenger had gone all over the area and made certain that the enemies of Israel read this letter first. And it's as if they're reading a rumor, ironically, started by Sanballat himself. This is the absolute height of wickedness. Slandering someone in order to harm them for your own purposes. And this is why gossip and slander in the church is so incredibly harmful to the cause of Christ. If we could say that the building of the wall is like the furtherance of the gospel by the local church, then we could say that slander and attacks toward the people and toward leaders are are the very distraction that Satan would use to derail gospel efforts and ministry. That's what always happens. I'm going to return to that application a little bit later. But this this letter is absolutely earth-shattering. It's the, the content of it is scary. It's fear, fearful. This slanderous accusation which been, has been spread all around the, the area. What is he saying? First of all, they're accusing Nehemiah of planning a rebellion against the strongest power on earth, against the Persian Empire, and that everybody else is starting to hear this. The second thing he says is, Nehemiah, we've heard you're going to set yourself up to be king. And the way he was going to do this was to hire prophets to say that God had placed a king in Jerusalem. Now, why is that a big deal? In the context of Israel's history, the prophet of God was at times in the role of a king maker. And this happened multiple times. Samuel declared Saul to be king and later anointed David as king. Samuel the prophet was a king maker. The prophet Nathan declared Solomon to be the true king of Israel over his brother Adonijah in 1 Kings 1. In 2 Kings 9, the prophet Elisha declared Jehu as the new king of the northern kingdom of Israel as a judgment on the house of wicked king Ahab and his wife Jezebel. So, so this is a crafty accusation. It's one that would have the, the sound of truth. It would, it would be believable that Nehemiah was hiring prophets to support his cause because if anything would convince all the Jews in the area that Nehemiah was to be king, it would be prophets of God. And the message concludes with, so now it will be heard by the king according to these words. This is an explicit threat that if Nehemiah doesn't come and talk to these men, they're going to make certain the Persian king thinks a rebellion is coming. And if you go all the way back to Nehemiah 1, you remember that that Nehemiah had the trust and he had the good pleasure of the king and the king was supporting him. And if the king had heard that Nehemiah was actually off, uh, off to make himself king of this area and to rebel, that would have brought the wrath of the king of Persia down on him. So these are revilers, they're slanderers, and they're making a power play by trying to terrify Nehemiah and the people of God. But what do you do with lies? You call them out for what they are. Verse 8, Then I sent a message to him saying, Such words as you are saying have not been done, but you are devising them in your own heart. What a message. He just pushes back the truth. And Nehemiah knew the motives. Verse 9, For all of them were trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will become limp in doing the work and it will not be done. Who are the all of them? This is what bullies do. They try to gather people around them. The all of them are all those listed in verse 1. Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies. To give Nehemiah the, the feeling that he's all alone, that he's surrounded, that he can't possibly stand alone. Beware of any spiritual attack meant to cause fear. Because it is an attack. Great questions to ask yourself to be very honest with yourself. What is it that makes you tremble? What is it that is your greatest nemesis? What is your enemy? The, the one thing that you would say to the Lord, Lord, I'll face anything, just not this. What is it that you would even sin to avoid? Whatever the answer to those questions are for you, that's precisely the fear that you must face. And what's the strategic weapon? Prayer for now, for this situation, for this moment. Look at this prayer at the end of verse 9. Just a quick prayer. 
But now, O God, strengthen my hands. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. This is a simple prayer. It's a quick prayer. It's an I don't have time for a long prayer prayer. But it's a prayer with two profound implications. The first implication is that Nehemiah places himself as being in agreement with the revealed plan of God. He's saying in this prayer, I agree with your plan. I am in accordance with your plan. I am in cooperation with your plan. I want to do your will. That's the safest place to pray is in the will of God. How do we know that Nehemiah places himself in agreement with the revealed plan of God? He does this by using the metaphor of God strengthening his hands. What does this mean? And it's clearly a metaphor. Nehemiah doesn't mean literally, make the muscles and tendons of my hands stronger. That's not what he means. It's a metaphor for giving him the power to carry out the will of God, no matter the opposition or the cost. And by using this metaphor, what he's doing is he's expressing his desire to do God's desire. I'm praying, God, for for the strength to do what you've already said ought to be done. He's not asking for personal benefit. He's not asking even for emotional help. He's asking for immediate help to do the will of God. How is he doing this? How is he showing that he is in accordance with the will of God? Well, in the larger context of Ezra and Nehemiah, Remember the phrase that indicates that God is providentially working through his people and accomplishing his kingdom purposes? I think it's worth our time to just look at this briefly. Turn back to Ezra chapter 7 and we'll just be reminded of this metaphor that, that is interwoven all through Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra chapter 7 verse 6. Ezra chapter 7, verse 6, This Ezra went up from Babylon, and he was a scribe, skilled in the law of Moses, which Yahweh, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all he requested, here it is, because the hand of Yahweh, his God, was upon him. Look at verse 28 of the same chapter, very last verse of chapter 7. Oh, we can begin at 27, rather. Blessed be Yahweh, the God of our fathers, who has put such a thing as this in the king's heart to beautify the house of Yahweh, which is in Jerusalem, and has extended loving kindness to me before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty princes. Thus I was strengthened according to the hand of Yahweh my God upon me. Look at Ezra chapter 8, verse 18. This wonderful phrase, 8, 18, so according to the good hand of our God upon us, they brought us a man of insight. Verse 22 of the same chapter, for I was ashamed to ask from the king for a military force and horsemen to help us against the enemy on the way because we had said to the king, the hand of our God is upon all those who seek him for their good. Verse 31, same chapter, Then we set out for the river Ahava on the twelfth of the first month to go to Jerusalem. And the hand of our God was upon us. Turn now to Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah 2 verse 8. Nehemiah has made his requests of the king. Big big requests to be able to go back to Judah and to to rebuild the walls, rebuild the fortress. The end of chapter 2 verse 8 And the king granted them to me because the good hand of my God was on me. In verse 18 of chapter 2. And I told them how the hand of my God had been good to me. What is Nehemiah doing in his prayer? What he's saying is is that your hand has been on this project. Your hand has been on me. Now strengthen my hand to be part of your hand. And he's praying to carry out God's will. The enemies of God's people thought that the effect of fear would be what? Their hands will become limp in doing the work. In other words, they would fail to do the will of God because of fear. But Nehemiah prays that his hand, meaning his role as the leader to strengthen and to encourage all the people would be strengthened so as to see the good hand of God work. And this is so important. This is a pivotal moment because if Nehemiah falters, if he fails, what happens to the work? It's going to be like dominoes going down and everyone else's heart will melt with fear. Because if Nehemiah is afraid, then we have good reason to be afraid would be the idea. 
Asking for help and strength to do that which you already know is the will of God is a powerful prayer because you're very confident that God will answer this prayer. When you are facing a fear, you look at to Scripture and say, what are the commands that go with this fear? What are the commands I need to pray through? I, I'm afraid that my marriage might not be all that God wants it to be. So what's the command? Husbands, love your wives. Well, pray for that. God, help me now. Every other area of life that includes a fear, you identify the command of Scripture, you pray that command, and you ask God for help in that moment. And God answers those prayers. There's a second implication to this prayer. Nehemiah is clear about where his strength originates. He's clear about where his strength originates. When he says, strengthen my hands, this is a broad word which can mean to firm up, to bind up, to give strength in general. And he's praying in this verb form for God to cause his hands to be strengthened. He's not saying, help me to use all the strength I have. He's not acknowledging any strength. He's saying, cause me to be strong. And as we've gotten to know Nehemiah, he's certainly a capable leader. He's wise. He's shrewd. He's a trailblazer. But we have consistently, time and time again, seen in Nehemiah that he knows from whom his strength comes. He is humble and he knows that he is dependent on the Lord and the Lord alone. There's no sense of dependence on self. It doesn't mean that he doesn't make any effort at wisdom or personal exertion. It just means he's not spiritually strengthened in himself. And this is normal for Nehemiah. I, I love the fact that we have so many examples of Nehemiah's prayers and they happen so spontaneously. He just simply inserts in here, but now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. That reminds me so much of Paul's admonition to pray without ceasing. To pray at all times. Later on in chapter 8, when the people of God are hearing the word of God and they realize just how much they've strayed from obedience to the Lord, Nehemiah is going to encourage the people to celebrate the word of God instead of weeping because of it. And listen to what he says to them because he's lived it personally. Nehemiah 8 verse 10, Then he said to them, Go, eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, and send portions to him who has nothing prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Listen to this. Do not be grieved, for the joy of Yahweh is your strength. This is a great word. Your strength means a mountain stronghold, a fortress. Now, why is this ironic? Because Nehemiah is helping build Jerusalem, which is a mountain fortress at the top of a little mountain. What he's saying is, is that God is your Jerusalem. He is your mountain fortress. He is the true source of safety and joy and peace, not the city. Why can he say this so readily and so easily and with so much confidence to God's people? Because he's lived it. Can you imagine standing alone against all of these princes with armies all around you who have, who have threatened to turn you over to the most powerful king on earth? And he stands up against it. So he places himself in agreement with God, the best vantage point for prayer, and he knows where his strength originates. He runs to the source of his strength immediately. And here's the irony. By placing himself in the helpless position of relying solely on God, Nehemiah is given courage, he's given strength, he recognizes the attack of the enemy for what it is, an attempt to intimidate Nehemiah based on, from what a human standpoint, seemed like an impossible situation. This is what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12.10. He said, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions and hardships for the sake of Christ. And here's the secret of living the Christian life. For when I am weak, then I am what? Strong. The less of me is there, the stronger I am. Because God is my strength. That's the essence of living by faith. It is dependence. And, it's, and that happens in prayer. That's where that happens. That you're strengthened by the Lord when the problem isn't solved yet. And in fact, your strength is such that you, you reach a point where you don't need to solve the problem because you've attacked the source of the fear and now it doesn't matter what happens. The strength comes when you need it. And Nehemiah would need this strength because the next attack is right on the heels of the first one. The first strategic weapon against fear is prayer for now. The second strategic weapon against fear, prayer for later. 
Prayer for later. Now we kind of go to a new scene. It's related but different. Nehemiah goes to the house of Shemaiah. It seems that Nehemiah was summoned there and Shemaiah plays the part of prophet of God sent to warn Nehemiah. Verse 10. Now I entered the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehetabel, who was confined at home. And he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple and let us close the doors of the temple for they are coming to kill you and they are coming to kill you at night. Shemaiah is predicting for Nehemiah that his enemies are coming to kill him and they should go hide. They should go hide out in the temple. And Shemaiah is good. He is slick. Do you notice this little detail? Shemaiah, who was confined at home. Why is that there? There's really only one reason that could be there. And it has to be there for a reason. It's not just that, oh, by the way, Shemaiah had a leg problem that he was dealing with. And it's not something that's that's irrelevant. Shemaiah is given the, the appearance of piety, the appearance of importance and gravity and saying, I'm a prophet of God. How do we know this? Shemaiah might be deceptive, but he's not an idiot. He's taking a page from Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 3, verses 24 and 25 records the Lord commanding Ezekiel to shut himself up in his house in preparation for a message of doom against Jerusalem. In other words, Shemaiah is, is like, like, he's playing the prophet by saying, look at me, just like Ezekiel was commanded to shut himself up in his house before delivering God's message of doom, I'm doing the same thing. But by the strength and the wisdom that God had given to Nehemiah already, he saw right through it. Verse 11, but I said, should a man like me flee and could one such as I go into the temple just to live? I will not go in. He will not give up. He will not be badgered down. Listen, it is bad spiritual leadership that ever encourages a fearful response. There is a difference between prudence and fear. And this is just flat out fear. And Nehemiah rejects it and he sees that it's another trick to lure him into a, being, into a secluded spot, most likely to be murdered in the temple of God itself. By the way, a little interesting note here, good lesson for us, very often the wicked do the very thing that they accuse the righteous of doing. They're the ultimate hypocrites. You remember how Sam Ballot accused Nehemiah of hiring prophets to further his own cause? This is exactly what Sam Ballot did. Verse 12, Then I recognized that surely God had not sent him, but he spoke his prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him. I want you to notice what Nehemiah's view of fear is. His view of fear is that fear causes unrighteous, sinful actions and terrible consequences for God's kingdom program. Look at his view in verse 13. He was hired for this reason, so that I might become afraid and act accordingly and what? Sin. So that they could give me a bad name in order that they could reproach me. Fear is not a challenge. Fear is not a mistake. Fear is not an obstacle. Fear ultimately is a sin. Because it says, I don't believe what the Bible says about the strength that God can provide. I don't believe that God is big enough to take care of me. I don't believe that, that He can give me peace. I don't believe, Psalm 4, verse 8, that I will lie down and sleep in peace for you alone, O Lord, make me the dwell in safety. I don't believe, Philippians 4, that says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. This is a hard truth, but fear is sin. I'm not talking about the, the instantaneous bodily reaction when a, a car drives by you at 100 miles an hour, two feet away from you. That's just your body going, oh, you're about to die, be afraid. We understand that. But when you have the time to reflect on a situation and you choose to stay fearful and you don't fight against it and you don't get in prayer, it is a sin. And Nehemiah recognizes this. He he feels that he has been almost sucked into sinful actions because of fear. And now, just as Nehemiah prayed earlier for now, at this juncture, he prays for later. 
Verse 14, here's his prayer. Remember, oh my God, Tobiah and Sambalat, according to these works of theirs, and also Noadiah the prophetess and the rest of the prophets who were trying to make me afraid. First of all, you notice here that Shemaiah, the false prophet, was just the ringleader. Numerous so-called prophets had been called out and hired to make Nehemiah afraid. Satan's pulling out all the stops here. But notice also, that now Nehemiah finds comfort not just in praying for strength for this moment, but in looking to the future vindication and justice to be meted out by God. Now, last time we looked ahead to Nehemiah's prayers in chapter 13 for God to remember him in the future, but in this particular instance, Nehemiah prays for God to remember the enemies of God in the future. This is an imprecatory prayer, a prayer for justice, a prayer for pain to come upon God's enemies. I know that's, not, that's counterculture for us. And, and it's easy to say, wow, that's not very nice. They should have invited Tobiah to church. That's what they should have done. Or you might say, well, no one in heaven would pray that way. Oh, but they do. And we love prayers from heaven because we know they're perfect. Revelation 6 records the martyrs of the coming great tribulation in heaven crying out to God, How long, O Master, holy and true, will you not judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Listen, there is such comfort in praying for the coming justice of God. And notice that Nehemiah acknowledges that that this won't happen immediately. It's not going to happen right away. So his comfort is in the fact that it will happen later. Now, I understand that you might not feel comfortable with this sort of prayer, but the fact that he's looking ahead to the vindication of God's people, it's meant to be part of your strength. It's meant to be part of your comfort. And you might even say, I'm not even sure how to pray a prayer like that. Well, let me show you how. Turn ahead just a few pages to Psalm 94. Psalm 94. Psalm 94 begins with a cry for justice and ends with tremendous comfort and help. It's kind of a classic pattern for this sort of prayer. Psalm 94. This is the God of the Bible. O Yahweh, God of vengeance, God of vengeance, shine forth. Be lifted up, O judge of the earth, Render recompense to the proud. How long shall the wicked, O Yahweh, how long shall the wicked exult? They pour forth words. They speak arrogantly. All workers of iniquity vaunt themselves. They crush your people, O Yahweh, and afflict your inheritance. They slay the widow and the sojourner and murder the orphans. They have said, Yah does not see, nor does the God of Jacob discern. Discern, you senseless among the people, and when will you have insight, you fools? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, will he not rebuke? Even he who teaches man knowledge? Yahweh knows the thoughts of man, that they are vanity. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Yah, and whom you teach out of your law that you may grant him calm from the days of calamity until a pit is dug for the wicked. For Yahweh will not abandon his people, nor will he forsake his inheritance. For judgment will again be righteous and all the upright in heart will follow it. Who will arise for me against evildoers? Who will take his stand for me against workers of iniquity? If Yahweh had not been my help, my soul would soon have dwelt in the abode of silence. If I should say my foot has stumbled, your loving kindness, O Yahweh, will hold me up. And when my anxious thoughts multiply within me, your consolations delight my soul. Can a throne of destruction be allied with you, one which forms trouble by statute? They band themselves together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. But Yahweh has been my stronghold and my God, the rock of my refuge. He has brought back their iniquity upon them and will destroy them in their evil. Yahweh, our God, will destroy them. I want you to see something in verse 23. He uses past tense and future tense at the same time. That his faith is now bolstered as if the enemies of God have already been destroyed. 
That's what looking ahead, praying for later does. He starts, Oh, Yahweh, God of vengeance, shine forth and he ends. Yahweh has been my stronghold. Where does this transport you? It transports you to the future. It gives you confidence and peace by taking you to a place you haven't been yet. Taking you to a time that hasn't been yet. It transports you out of the realm of the now and lets you enjoy the glories glories of a time when all things are made right. Turn back with me to Nehemiah 6. The first strategic weapon against prayer is prayer for now. The second is prayer for later. One more strategic weapon against fear. Spiritual watchfulness at all times. Prayer for now, prayer for later, but spiritual watchfulness at all times. Verse 15 is a giant victory statement. So the wall was finished on the 25th of the month Elul in 52 days. The date of the completion of the wall is given as the 25th of Elul, the sixth month of the Jewish calendar. This is an astounding feat, even by modern standards. Less than six months have passed since Nehemiah first received permission from the Persian king to complete the rebuilding of the wall. The whole story of Nehemiah is leading to this moment. This short time that's elapsed is meant to surprise you, to surprise the reader And to give faith that God answers prayers. And look at the deflation of God's enemies. Verse 16 is just a huge to God's enemies. It's just a big raspberries at them. Verse 16, now it happened that when all our enemies heard of it and all the nations surrounding us saw it, their confidence fell. And they knew that it was from our God that this work had been accomplished. Wow. This forms what is called an inclusio. Literary bookends. Verse 1, it happened that it was heard by Sanballat and the rest of our enemies. I had rebuilt the wall. And now, verse 16, now it happened when all of our enemies heard of it. Of what? Now the wall is truly done. And their, their fearsomeness is gone. The gates are set. The city is secure. This is what one commentator called a giant Old Testament nanny-nanny-boo-boo. I want to unpack this statement. In verse 16, their confidence fell. This is a good English summary statement, but the Hebrew gives a really, really important nuance. Whether we see in verse 9, whether we see in verse 13, whether we see in verse 19, they were trying to make us afraid, trying to give us fear, trying to make us fearful. But in Hebrew, their confidence fell, reads something like this. Frightened were all the nations around us, and they fell greatly in their own eyes. In other words, who's frightened now? Now it's the enemies of God. Their pride is deflated and battered. God has defeated them. All of chapters 2 through 6 are summed up here at the end of verse 16. That it was known now that the wall had been rebuilt from our God. And this highlights the fact that the accomplishment of the rebuilding of the wall and all the achievements of chapters 2, 3, 4, and 5 are answers to prayer. At the beginning of this conflict over rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem, Sanballat and Tobiah viewed Nehemiah as just some guy they didn't agree with and they they were going to intimidate him. But now they acknowledge that this is the hand of God himself. Now, here's one of the great ironies of the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. Doesn't that feel like that should be the end of the book? Doesn't that feel like that should be the final verse? The, the, the big, glorious victory? It feels like a climactic ending to a great spiritual battle and God's people have won with the help of the Lord. But the story continues and Tobiah hasn't given up. Why? Well, it was hinted at in verse 1. Let's see why he continues to be a thorn in Nehemiah's side. Verse 17. Also in those days, many letters went from the nobles of Judah to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were sworn by oath to him because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Era, and his son Johanan had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, as a wife. Moreover, they were speaking about his good deeds in my presence and bringing my words to him. Then Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. Verse 1 hinted at internal problems. Verses 17 through 19 now openly states them. 
that some of the nobles of Judah were actually the enemies of Judah. This is, this is a classic case of blood being thicker than water because Tobiah was related to two prominent Jewish families through marriage in verse 18. Now, this is just a little interesting note here. Verses 17 through 19 prepare the reader for the final chapter of the book in Nehemiah 13. In Nehemiah 13, Tobiah is still a, a pain in the side. Tobiah has by then wrangled his way into having a personal apartment in the temple complex. He's not even a Jew. The temple workers and the ministers of the temple weren't being paid like they're supposed to. The Sabbath day was being turned into a farmer's market day. Jews were intermarrying with foreign women again. When the themes and in the vocabulary, verses 17 through 19, are closely tied to chapter 13, and both of them include Tobiah three times. What does it show? It shows that the enemies of God, even when they have temporary setbacks, don't give up. That These three verses are deliberately disappointing. There's a sinking understanding that the, the problems and the continued threat to Israel are not outside the walls. They're inside the walls. You might have expected a glorious celebration and dedication of the wall. That's delayed all the way to the end of chapter 12. So what does Nehemiah do in response to the continued pestering by Tobiah and his Jewish relatives in an attempt yet again to make him fear They put the new wall and gates of Jerusalem to good use. Chapter 7, now it happened when the wall was rebuilt and I had made the doors to stand and the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites were appointed that I commanded Hanani, my brother, and Hananiah, the commander of the fortress, to be over Jerusalem, for he was a faithful man and feared God more than many. Then I said to them, the gates of Jerusalem must not be opened until the sun is hot and until they are are there standing guard, they must shut and bolt the doors. Also have guards from the inhabitants of Jerusalem stand, each at his post and each in front of his own house. But this act of guarding the city will be a little bit effective, but it's minimally effective and a bit hollow because what we find here is that the real strength of the city will not be found in the rebuilt wall. The real strength of the city would have to be found in the rebuilt people. Because walls can't keep out problems that are inside. Walls keep, can't keep out heart problems. A holy city requires a holy people. So the rest of Nehemiah, chapters 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, is concerned with the reformation of the people, the character of the people themselves. Now as we... Look to the final section of Ezra and Nehemiah, which deals with the effort to reform the people. What we notice is that, that yet again, the stark truth of the need for a new covenant is clear. That a heart-changing covenant in which the Holy Spirit changes the people of God and begins to, to form Christ's likeness in them. I think we could actually relate to this as a church on this very property. In our new property here, because of the world we live in, we have a security gate. We have a fence all around and that can protect us from the enemy outside who might do damage to property or even harm to people. But those external defenses are useless against the real danger to the church. The real danger to the church is always from within. If you did a brief survey of the New Testament, you don't find a lot of warnings about outside enemies of the gospel. You don't find a lot of warnings. Watch out for the government. Paul said, by and large, just to submit to the government unless a direct command against God is given. You don't find, watch out for haters and critics who don't know Christ. Jesus said not to be shocked at that and to love your enemies. We don't find, watch out for persecution and fight back against it. Peter said, don't be surprised at the fiery trial that comes against you. There's not a lot of that. There's not a lot of, watch out for the outside enemy. But what you do get is a plethora of warnings to those inside the church. And some of them are lengthy. And I'd like to just quickly do a little, a little perusal here with you. Turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter 2. And I'd like to show you how the Bible begins to give a crescendo forward of warnings about those inside the church. 2 Peter chapter 2. Verse 1, 
But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Look at the very end of chapter 2. The message of the true proverb has happened to them. This is verse 22. A, a dog returns to its own vomit, and a sow, after watching, washing, returns to wallowing in the mire. And you say, where is that coming from? All of Second Peter chapter 2 is watch out for false teachers within the church. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John 2, verse 18. 1 John 2, verse 18, Children, it is the last hour, and just as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they were of us, they would have remained with us. What does that mean? It means that the enemy was within. And in some cases, the church is graced with the ability to see who these enemies are because they eventually leave. Look at 1 John 4, verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And the next four verses are warnings about teachers in the church that would bring a spirit of error. Look with me at 2 John, verse 7. 2 John, verse 7. For many deceivers have gone into the world. Those who do not confess Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver in the Antichrist. What, what kind of deceivers are these? These are theologians. Theologians in the church who, who split hairs and they begin to say, we're not certain about the humanity of Christ. Look with me at 3 John, verse 9. 3 John, verse 9. I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, probably an elder, who loves to be first among them, does not welcome what we say. For this reason, if I come, I will bring to remembrance his deeds, which he does. Look with me at Jude, verse 3. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you, exhorting that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints, for certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. In verse 17, But you, beloved, must remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you in the last time there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts, these are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, not having the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. All inside the church, all inside the wall. You see that when Jesus said that the wheat of the true believers will grow up with the weeds of the false believers, that he wasn't kidding around? So what does this call for? It calls for spiritual watchfulness at all times. We do not succumb to fear. Not one of the passages I just read to you said that the answer is to panic and hide. Not one. Rather, 3 John 4 is the answer I have no greater joy than this to hear that my children are walking in what? In the truth. In the truth. We walk in the truth. We cling very closely to the revealed Word of God alone. I'd like to finish our time this evening really just purely on application because this text in Nehemiah is so filled with lessons for us. And I'm going to go through these fairly quickly, but if you'd indulge me, I'd like to address three groups. And these three groups have some overlap. Group number one, the individual Christian who may struggle with fear. The individual Christian who may struggle with fear. In other words, all of us. So group number one is everybody. Let me give you some thoughts here from our text. First thought is that fear itself is the enemy to be conquered. Fear itself is the enemy to be conquered. That's the, that's the enemy. God may or may not take away the source of your fear. He doesn't always solve all of our problems but he will give you the courage to face them, and that's the whole point. 
spiritual alertness in this particular case, it means being alert how the Lord would use your situation for your own sanctification. That you look beyond what the situation is and say, now wait a minute, what is God teaching me? What does God want me to, how does he want me to grow in this? How do I need to learn to not be afraid? That's the point of the problem. The exercise, in fact, might be the confession of sinful fear, which is not trusting the Lord. Here's another thought to individual Christians who may struggle with fear. Use the two types of prayers and get armored up for battle. The prayer for now. Find psalms to guide your prayers for now. Psalm 3, Psalm 4, Psalm 6, and the process of finding them will be beneficial. So I'm not going to give them all to you. And how about the prayer for later? Use psalms such as Psalm 69 and 94 and 109. Pray for now. Pray for later. That is a one-two punch guaranteed to deal with your fear. Speaking of psalms, a third thing we could say of this group is get to know what the psalms say about fear. Get to know what the psalms say about fear. Take the time to search the term fear and afraid in the psalms and you'll find you have many friends standing next to you. How about a friend like King David? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I what? Fear no evil, for you are with me. Let me give one more lesson to this group. After a spiritual victory, expect an attack. After a spiritual victory, expect an attack. Nehemiah had a one-two attack, right? One after the other. You notice that after the victorious statement of finishing the walls in chapter 6, verse 16, the enemies of God may may have suffered a temporary setback, but Satan isn't stopping until he's stopped. There's never a point where you relax. That doesn't happen until Christ reigns on earth. Ephesians 6 tells us, Be strong in the Lord and in the might of His strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. We talk about this numbers of times among our leadership team. When things are going really well in the church, that's the time to be wary. That's the time to be alert. That's the time to be in prayer. That's the time to be humble. We never relax. Let me speak to a second group. The Christian as a member of the local church. Kind of the same as the first group, but thinking more about membership now. The, the Christian is a member of the local church. First of all, I would ask you to ask yourself a very sobering question. Am I more a tool of God or a tool of Satan in the church? I've been a pastor long enough to see both. You are, as it were, inside the walls of the church. There is no perfect church. We all sin. At every Grace Connect class, I like to show up and apologize in advance to the new members for all the ways that I'm going to disappoint them. And then I say, but I forgive you for all the ways you're going to disappoint us. And so we're all in it together. But the question to continually keep in your mind is this. Am I one who enhances and bolsters and encourages and works for the sake of the gospel? Or do I detract with my negativity? Do I weigh down with complaining and gossip? Do I discourage with my lack of brotherly love? Do I observe from the sidelines with a critical spirit? We all know the common phrase, thorn in the flesh. That was invented by the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12. You know what the thorn of a fl- uh, thorn in the flesh is? In context, it's a difficult person inside the church. So the second thing I'd like to have you consider as a member of the local church. Spiritual alertness means understanding that Satan loves dissension and trouble inside the church. Spiritual alertness means understanding that Satan loves dissension and trouble inside the church. Disunity, discouragement, distraction, These always undermine the gospel. These always put a taint, puts a cloud over the gathered worship of God's people. Satan absolutely loves to convince people that inside the walls of the church that the church is a service organization that exists to serve me, that exists to serve you. I praise the Lord for the example of the church at Smyrna in Revelation 2 whose members were being thrown into prison and killed for their faith I can imagine the emails to that pastor. Well, I showed up to a worship service and not only were the ushers all bruised and beaten and looking horrible, but I had to witness several people being dragged off by the police. And on top of that, the coffee was cold. I just don't think you're really serving the needs of the community that well. Satan would have us believe that the church is here for us. 
Let me address group number three, and that is the appointed leaders of the church. And this is for everyone because some of you will be in leadership if you're not, and others of you are supportive of leadership. The appointed leaders of the church, I have two warnings. Fear in a leader is poison to the church. Fear in a leader is poison to the church. How can fear be manifested in a leader? It can be manifested by having a desire to please unbelievers, by having a desire to worry about what the world thinks, to worry about what people think. It can be manifested by being overly cautious about simply telling the truth from Scripture. It can be manifested by thinking that the goal of being in leadership is to avoid criticism. Instead, we're to fear God in order to discern evil schemes and meet those with truth. We just tell the truth. Fear in a leader is like poison to the church. And one other warning. Leaders above all others must be spiritually alert. Leaders above all others must be spiritually alert. Asking questions like, how is your marriage? How is your prayer life? How is your commitment level? How is your family How is your own personal sanctification? What are you reading to bolster your own soul? How is your Bible reading? What what is it that you're learning? What are you actively and purposefully doing to pursue Christ-likeness? How is it that you're, you're not coasting on a great Bible study you did two decades ago? What are you doing right now to bolster your own soul? Are you characterized by love? Better yet, if I asked 50 people in the church, would they say you're characterized by love? What is your attitude toward the preached word of God? Is it slacking any? Or is there hunger and drive there? If I have heard this from one, I've heard it from a hundred pastors who say, it seems like that the minute I made so-and-so an elder, his interest in the preached word just went out the window because he felt he'd arrived. These are questions that must be asked. Why must a leader above all, all others be vigilant? Because you're the prime target. You're the prime target. Sanballat and Tobiah did not go after the guy mixing the mortar for the wall. He went after Nehemiah. Because if Nehemiah falters, then the whole project falters. One last thing. This is just for fun. There's a little detail that kind of slipped by. You remember the false accusation made against Nehemiah? Chapter 6, verse 7. I'll just read it to you. You have also set up prophets to call out in Jerusalem concerning you. A king is in Judah. Isn't there a part of you, even though that's a false accusation against Nehemiah, isn't there a part of you that thinks, oh, that would be great if there were prophets proclaiming there is a king in Judah? Well, a prophet has already done this. Mark chapter 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the region of Judea or Judah was going out to him and all the people of Jerusalem. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River confessing their sins. And he was preaching and saying, After me one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The King, Jesus Christ, came the first time to offer spiritual salvation to all who would believe on him, to pay the penalty for our sins at the cross. The second time, The king comes. This will be announced by God himself. Psalm 2. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord mocks them. Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his fury saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. As you're praying your prayers for now and your prayers for later, not only are you asking for God's judgment on the enemies of God's people and the enemies of God, You're also looking ahead to that moment when it comes true. I have installed my king upon Zion. So you see, this little shadow, the prophets calling out, a king is in Judah. Didn't happen with Nehemiah, but it's going to happen. And that gives me great hope. What does that mean? Three words. Christian, 
fear not. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that we have no need to fear. The very worst thing that can happen to us in this life is, is death, and death means victory. To be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. There's quite literally nothing that can be done to us. There's nothing to be afraid of. Lord, I pray for a man or a woman here who knows in their own heart they're struggling with fear, with absolute terror at the prospect of something in life that they do not want to face. I pray that you would strengthen them for now. I pray that you would strengthen their hands to do your will. And I pray that you would strengthen them with the knowledge that later you will make all things right, that the King is coming, and that all the enemies of God, including the enemy of sickness and death, and the enemy of fear itself will be eradicated. Give them comfort. Give them joy. Help us, Lord, as believers living on this earth to not waste one more day walking in anything less than joy and contentment. For fear has no place in the hearts of one who serves the King of all the kings. And it's in His name we pray. Amen.